All right, so like I said this morning, we are going to be addressing the, the subject of heavenly and earthly treasures. Heavenly and earthly treasures. And what we're going to do this morning is we are going to look at this subject of heavenly and earthly treasures. We're going to look at it under, under three headings, all right? And so if you can put those three headings up. The first thing we're going to do this morning is we are going to look at the types of treasures, the types of treasures. Then the second thing we're going to do this morning is we are going to look at the search for treasures, the search for treasures. And the last thing we're going to look at this morning is we're going to spend the end of our time looking at the treasure of treasures, all right? So the types, the search, and the treasure, okay? So let's begin this morning by looking at the types of treasures, the types of treasures. Now, in this passage, Jesus tells us about two different types of of treasures, and you see it in verse 19 where he says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but he says, Instead, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And so Jesus says in this passage, There are two types of treasures. And before we go any deeper into that, what I want to do is I want to give you a definition of what the word treasure actually means. Because when we think of treasures, we all kind of have our own idea and picture of what a treasure is. But I want to give you the, what, literally what the word treasure means in Greek so that as I use the word, because we're going to use this word a lot this morning, I want you to know exactly what Jesus meant by it. Here's what the word treasure means in the Greek. And if you're taking notes, I recommend you write this down. The word treasure that Jesus uses here is this, something that is precious and of exceptional value and that as a result must be kept safe, all right? So, so I looked at many, many word studies and essentially they all say similar things. So I summarized it with this phrase, something that is precious and of exceptional value and that as a result must be kept safe. That's what a treasure is. And so when Jesus talks about treasures, whether that's earthly or heavenly, this is the definition that he is using. So forget about what your definition is. Use Jesus' definition, okay? And this will make more sense as we go, as we go through, okay? So here's what I want to do under this first point. There's essentially three questions that I want to ask and answer under this first point, if you can put that slide up with the three questions. The first question that I want to look at this morning under this first point is what are the different types of treasures? What are the different types of treasures? Then the next question that we're going to have to answer if we're going to figure out the types of treasures is what are the major differences between those two, these, these treasures, right? And the last thing then is under this point is how do we identify our treasures, okay? So what are the different types? What are the major differences? And how can we identify our treasures? So the first question I want to ask and answer under this first point is what are the different types of treasures? And Jesus says that there's actually two types of treasures, there are two categories when it comes to treasures. The first category are the treasures that are in, on earth, right? And then he says the second category are the treasures that are in heaven. And so actually that's one of the distinctions because the second question that we're going to answer is what are the major differences between these two categories? Jesus says that there's two major differences between earthly treasure and heavenly treasure. The first difference is location right? Clearly, because one's on, one's on earth and, and one's in heaven. But the second difference, which is just as important, is durability, the durability of the treasures. And the reason why I bring that up is because when you look at the passage, after he tells us where they are, location, then he tells us how, how much they last. He tells us about their durability. He says that treasures that are on earth, it says, will be destroyed by moths and by vermin, okay? 
And it gets really nasty in the Greek because in the Greek, the word there, moths, is actually the larvae of the moth. So it's not the actual flying moth, it's the larvae form of the moth, okay? And one of the things that was really common in those days, in, in Jesus' day, there was two, you didn't have banks. So what you would do is your wealth would be essentially clothes and metals, precious metals, okay? So, so the first one, which is the, the, the moths, they would get into your clothes and they would destroy your clothes. And so there wasn't stores where you would go buy more clothes. Your family would pass on the clothes from generation to generation. And so if you don't like hand-me-downs, imagine living back then, okay? Because you would literally get generation after generation. A lot of your wealth was wrapped up in the, the fine cloth that your, 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 your family uh, wore. And so what would happen over time, if you weren't careful, is the, the larvae would get, in, the larva would get into your, your, your clothes and destroy it. Right? But in the other type of treasure, the other type of, of currency, if you will, in Jesus' day was precious metals. And the word there, vermin, that you see in the passage, it, I don't know why the NIV does that, because in the actual Greek, the word there, vermin, means to rust. It means to rust and to eat away, something that's corroding. And so Jesus takes the two types of currency, the two types of, 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 of savings, if you will, clothing and precious metals, and he says the clothing gets eaten up and then the, the metals get rusted and corroded. And so a major difference between these two treasures is the durability of the treasure. The treasure that's on earth is going, to eventually, is going to get worse and worse and worse, and then eventually it's going to die. And then the treasure on earth is, is in, I mean, in heaven is eternal and will never go away. That's, that's a major distinction between those two uh, treasures, okay? Now, if you go back to the three questions, I want to spend the majority of my time looking at that third question. So what are the different types? Well, there's some in heaven and there's some on earth, right? And what are, what, another, what are the major differences? Well, the location and the durability, right? That answers the second question. But then the third question that I want to spend more time on is, how do we identify our treasures? Because here's what we're going to do. We're, we're going to look at heavenly treasures, but that's going to happen later on in the message. I'm going to talk about heavenly treasures later on. What I want to do for, the, for this time, at least, is I want to look at earthly treasures. What does Jesus mean by, by earthly treasures? And once we understand what he means by them, how do we identify our treasures? Because every single one of us has treasures here. Now, one of the things that you might be saying is, well, no, I don't, I don't if, if, if the word treasure, remember what the definition of treasure was, is something that is precious and of exceptional value and that as a result must be kept safe, right? You might be sitting here this morning and you're saying, well, you know, I'm not really a churchgoer. I'm not really a worshiper. I'm not really treasuring things like that. You know, this is my first time here, or maybe I haven't been in church in a long time. And so uh, this isn't really for me. You're talking to more the, the, the religious people here, but, but, but not me. But what's interesting about the passage is that Jesus doesn't make a distinction on who has treasures. He says he makes the assumption that all of us have treasures. Because whether you believe God created you or not, he did. And God created you in a way, listen to this, he created you in such a way that you are built to worship. You are built to treasure. So we are all worshipers and we are all treasurers. And so if you think you could sit this one out because I'm not a religious person, Jesus doesn't give you that option. Okay. So as we talk about earthly treasures, the Bible uses another word for earthly treasures. There's another word that's much more common in, in, in the in New Testament in particular, but in the Bible in general, to describe earthly treasures. And, and that word is idols. Idols. So another word for earthly treasures is idols. Now, if you're new to church, you're like, well, what's an idol? Right? When we think of idol, we think of one of two things. We think of a reality show, right? right? Or we think of the little statues or big statues that people worship in other religions. 
It's usually what we think of when we think of idols. So we really don't, unless you're planning on trying out for the reality show, we really don't think about idols that much, right? Because we think, I don't have little statues in my house that I worship, so idolatry has nothing to do with me. See, but the problem is, is that the reason why, so Jesus in this context uses earthly treasures, but what he's describing, according to commentators, is he is describing idols. He is describing idols. An idol is what an idol is. It's not the little statue that that is worshipped in other religions. An idol is anything that you love, trust, or worship more than God. Okay? So let me say that again. This is a really important part of the message. An idol, so an earthly treasure is the same thing as an idol. What's an idol? An idol is anything that you are tempted to love, worship, or rely on more than God. That's what an idol is. And Jesus says that the danger about about treasures is that if we're not careful, what can happen is we can idolize things that are on earth instead of worshiping the God that's in heaven. And idolatry is extremely, extremely dangerous. Okay? Okay. And so that's why the, the, the question that we have to answer, if, if earthly treasures are the same thing as, is the same thing as idols, right, then how do we identify our treasures? How can we know the treasures, that, the things that we are treasuring, the, the, the gods that we are worshiping, the things that we are tempted to idolize? Well, I'm glad you asked because I'm going to tell you how you can know, okay? Here is the way you can tell. This word, idols, um, I came across a book a few years back, and what the author does is he takes this concept of idols, and, and what he does is he describes idols, and he uses the actual word idols as the acronym for it, okay? So each letter of the word idols is a different category where you can potentially find treasure, where you could potentially find and worship something smaller than Jesus, okay? So as I go through this list, I want you to be evaluating and saying, where, where do I land in this, and what are the things that I'm tempted to worship, Okay? What are the things I'm tempted to idolize and to treasure instead of Jesus, okay? The first category is items, items. So here's what, here's what I mean by items, okay? An item is anything that you own, like any possession that you own, that if you're not careful can actually own you, okay? So that includes cars, that includes technology, that includes clothes, that includes tools, right? It includes a bunch of stuff. It's something that you own. It could be a hobby. It can be uh, 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 whatever, but it's something that you own, right, that you actually are owned by. You think you own it, but it actually owns you. I remember a story. um, I came across a story a few few months ago where uh, this guy had traveled to, to India. He goes to India, and he, he, he saw one of the things that, that he found really interesting about India was he got an opportunity to go into this Indian family's home um, who were Hindu. And, and when he went into the living room or the living area of the house, what he saw was that there was this statue, this idol, and all the furniture in the living room was surrounded around this statue, Right? So, so what he did was, being a Christian, is he, he took his phone out and took a picture of it when they weren't looking, okay? So he took a picture of it. So he brings it home to his pastor, and he's like, Pastor, you got to see this. You're not going to believe how ridiculous these people are. Look how, how, how idolatrous they are. How, how, how dare they be so sinful and worshiping things smaller than Jesus? Look at their whole living room is built and centered around this statue. And look, they're worshiping it every time they sit there. And so they sit, they, they look at it, they, you know, they judge these people in their hearts, and they talk about how, how, you know, primitive they are. 
And then that same pastor goes home that day, plops in front of his TV and turns it on. And as he's watching TV, he looks around, the, he looks around his living room and he notices that all the furniture in the room is facing his idol. <laughs> See? So, so it's really easy to judge people. It's really easy to be like, oh, those are the primitive people from, from over there. But the reality, though, is that we, that TV, it's an item that actually owns us. We think we own it, but it actually owns us. And we spend more time in front of the TV than we do with Jesus, than we do with others, than we do in prayer. But, but those people are less, not us, we don't struggle with that. It's those idolaters over there. See? So one of the categories is items, items. Another category that you can look at in order to determine what you treasure, in order to determine what you idolize, is your duties. In other words, the roles that you play. Every single one of us, if we have a pulse, we have roles that we play on earth. And so that might be an employee, that might be a student, that might be a child, that might be a spouse, that might be a parent. We all play roles in life. But if you're not careful, one of the things you can do is you can idolize that role. You can take good duties that God has given you and you can promote them from being good things to being God things. And all it takes for something to be, go from good to God is you take one O out. You take the O out and the good goes to God. Okay? And so that's what a lot of us do. There's duties that we are called to, to, to carry out, but if we're not careful, we can actually idolize and, and, and actually worship and treasure what we do instead of what's been done. Okay? Another one is others. Others. Another place where we can find our, our gods or, 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 or treasures, another place where we can go in order to, 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 to things that we, we are tempted to idolize is with other people. This is a big one. It's probably the biggest one of all of them, right? Here's why that one's dangerous, because it could be anybody. So, so, so you might be tempted to, to worship your spouse. You might be tempted to idolize your children. You might be tempted to you know, idolize your boss and his opinion of you, Right? You know what's so insidious about the others? Here's what's so insidious about this one. You can actually worship someone who doesn't exist yet. Okay? Single people, when they're single long enough, they start worshiping the person that they're one day going to meet that's going to fix all their problems. And they're going to be perfect, and they're going to accept them, and it's going to be the best marriage ever. And you can actually idolize someone you haven't met yet. Okay? Or if you have, if you have a, a, a family that's, that's struggling with infertility, which is a real thing, one of the things that you could fall into if you're not careful is you can actually worship the child before the child arrives, and you're convinced that that child's going to fix everything. And any of you who've had children know that ch- children don't fix anything. <laughs> so there's nothing wrong with wanting it, but if you're not careful, you can actually want it too much. If you're not careful, you can take a good desire and make it a God desire. And another thing that goes under others is yourself. See, people say that the, the root of all sin is pride. Uh, no, no, no. The root of all sin is idolatry because pride is a form of idolatry. Because what you do when you are prideful, you're actually putting yourself in God's place. That's actually just another form of idolatry, okay? Another category that you can look to in order to determine what your treasures are is you can look at your longings. Look, God has created all of us for longings. We, we all have a desire to be known. We all have a desire to be in community. We all have a desire to succeed, Right? We all have a desire for, 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 for companionship, but if you're not careful, that desire can be an overarching desire. That desire can actually define your entire life. That thing, whatever it is, 
can overwhelm you. And you can actually put that longing over the God that gave you the longing. And then you're shocked when you can never satisfy the longing. And the last one, which when I originally read it a long, you know, a long time ago, I didn't really get it. He says that the next, the last category that you can look at in order to determine what you treasure, what you worship is your suffering, is your suffering. And, and, and when I first saw it, I'm like, ah, yeah, I don't know if I agree with that. But actually, the longer I've taught this, and some of you have heard me ta- teach this, I've done it in premarital and I taught it at WBC a few months ago. But, but, but suffering has actually become one of the most prominent ones for me. Because think about what suffering does. Let's say that you've gone through any kind of suffering. Let's say that was you've been through cancer or you've been through uh, uh, sexual abuse or you've been through a divorce or whatever it is, right? Let's say you've been through something very traumatic. If you're not careful, that thing can define you more than Jesus defines you. And so you meet someone and, and, and you find out they're a cancer survivor before you find out they're a Christian. So they don't, they don't tell you anything about Jesus on Facebook, but man, I'm going to put my, my, my pink ribbon, I'm going to put this up and that up, and everyone's going to know I'm a cancer survivor, though. See? Or if you've been through divorce, or if you've been through, you know, just a really traumatic thing, that thing can define you more than Jesus defines you. Your suffering can actually define you. And, and what's funny is, in my own life, a lot of you don't know my story, but I, I was born with microtia, which is an ear deformity. I was legit, I was legit born without an ear. And so I had 14 major reconstructive surgeries on the right side of my head. And so for a long time, I defined myself by what my ear looked like because of the bullying and because of how I was treated, right? My, my scar on my head defined me more than the scars on my Savior, okay? And so suffering is a major one. And probably out of all of them, it's the one that you feel most justified in. And that's why you got to be careful, okay? Now, you might be sitting here and you're thinking, okay, well, this helps, right? Because you're giving me categories, places that, that I am tempted to treasure, but I still don't know if I can, you know, nail down exactly what I worship, exactly what I treasure other than, other than Jesus. I don't know if I can figure out what my earthly treasures are. Well, there's a few ways you can figure out if you still don't know. Another way you can figure out, honestly, is by looking at where your money goes. Where does your money most easily go? Like, you don't have any, like, there's some areas where you're like, no, honey, we don't have money for that. But, man, I need my golf clubs, though. There's always money for golf. There's always money for, for, for you know, running shoes. There's always money for, for, for this video game or this TV or this console. There's always money for that, though. We don't got any money for anything else. So one of the easiest ways is by looking at your, your checkbook or your bank account. Chase will tell you. Okay. <laughs> You know, another way that you could tell if you still can't figure out, how do you spend your time, right? Well, like, what, what, where is your ideal place to spend your time? Is it, is it hunting? Is it, is it in front of the TV? Is it, you know, watching pornography? Is it, like, what do you find yourself, like, uh, one pastor says that the way you spell love is T-I-M-E. You know what you love by how much time you spend with that thing. And so I could tell my wife and daughters that I love them, but if I never spend time with them, then they're not, they're not going to actually spend feel loved, right? So where does your time go? It's another way. Another way is by looking at your thoughts. What do, you, what, do you, what do you daydream about? What do you find yourself fantasizing about? Like, what do you think, man, if I just had that, everything would be good? Your thought life. And you know the last one? The last way you can tell is your emotions. 
And here's what I mean by your emotions. When you are worshiping something smaller than Jesus, when you are treasuring earthly treasures, you can know by the emotions that you display. If in any place of your life you're exhibiting extreme emotion, and by extreme emotion I mean either extreme sorrow or uh, uh, extreme sadness or extreme discouragement or extreme joy, and every time you do that thing, it's like this extreme, if someone attacks that area of your life, you get super defensive. You're like, no, 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 don't you dare touch that. And you respond with extreme anger. Your emotions will tell you. I heard someone put it this way, and some of you have heard me say it here. If, if your greatest joy is not Jesus and your greatest sorrow is not sin, then there's probably a treasure or an idol that you're worshiping. Okay? So, we go back to the three points. The first truth that we see in this passage is we see the types of treasures, the types of treasures. Now that we know the types of treasures, the next thing that we see in this passage, which is probably my most, my, 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 my most favorite part of this whole sermon I was preparing, is we see the search for treasures. We see the search for treasures. What Jesus is about to do, and, and, and I, I'm not exaggerating when I say this, what Jesus does in this next section, in the amount of words that he does it, is better than any psychology book or counseling book you will ever read. Like there are psychology books, thousand-page psychology books written to describe what Jesus describes in a paragraph, okay? This is how masterful the dude is, okay? He tells us in this passage about the search for treasures. What does our search look like, okay? Look what he says in the next section. And it's funny because as I read it, it's, it's going to come off as the most confusing part of the passage. It's actually very confusing when you first read it. But once understood, it's the most practical part. Okay? Look what he says. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Here's what Jesus is saying here. He's talking to us about the search for treasures. So here's what this means. Not only do we already have treasures, and hopefully you've already have, have been able to admit that, right? Not only do we already have treasures, but we are so in, we are so sinful, we are so wicked that we are constantly on the search for new treasures. Because deep down we know that the things that we're currently worshiping can't satisfy us, and so we're constantly looking for other things to worship. And what Jesus does in this section is he actually tells us what that process looks like. Every single one of us is on a treasure hunt. We're always treasure hunting because there's, there's, a, there's a hole in our soul. There's like a well, and, and, and we, we throw things in it, and it doesn't work. It doesn't, it, we're not satisfied. We tried money. We, we try education. We try, we try the opposite sex. We try drugs. We try pornography. We try all these things, and it doesn't work. So we're, we're constantly on a treasure hunt because we're looking for the treasure that's finally going to satisfy our souls, okay? He says that we are always looking, and then he tells us what that search process looks like. He says that there are three parts to our search, and, and, and there's words that he uses here that, that actually reveal to us what this search looks like. He says in verse 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the heart is involved in this search process. Then he says the eye is the lamp of the body, and then he says if your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. So Jesus, he talks about the heart, then he talks about the eyes, then he talks about the body, and what he does in the most masterful way ever in human history, he summarizes most, of, most counseling and psychology in this one paragraph. Jesus actually tells us how you become an addict. He actually tells us how do you become a worshiper. 
He actually tells us how you become a treasurer of things that are smaller than him. Okay? So let's go through this. He says that it starts with the heart, then it goes to the eye, and then it goes to the body. So let me, let me explain this. I have a, like a, a graph actually that explains it, if you can put that, put that up. Here's the, the, the process that Jesus says. Here's what our, 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 how our addictions start. Here is how our false gods are discovered, okay? The first thing that happens is your heart believes. Now, here's what the thing about a heart is. We, we've talked about this in the past, but if you're new here, you haven't heard me to explain it. When we think about heart, we always think of our emotions, right? You only think of one or two things when you think of heart. You think about your emotions or you think about the organ that's beating in your chest. But in the Bible, the word heart is much more comprehensive than the definition we have. In the Bible, your heart is the center of your person. It is the seat of your person. So, so when the Bible uses heart, it's talking about your whole person. It's talking about your mind, your will, your emotions, everything. Okay? So in other words, you might as well just put yourself because the heart describes your whole person, your whole self. Okay? Jesus says that the way every addiction starts, the way every treasure that is being considered starts, the way you start the process is with your heart. You start to believe in your heart that that thing is going to satisfy you. You start to believe in your heart that that thing is going to give you something that you do not have. Okay? Then he says, after your heart starts to believe, the next thing that happened is, I have mine there, but, but it actually is the word I. When we think of the word I, we think of our physical I right? But actually in the Greek, the word I there means your mind's eye. So it's talking about your thoughts, how you think. Now, I, I, I found this passage, this part so complicated because I'm like, what do you mean that if the eye is in darkness, then, you know, if you let darkness in? Here, here's essentially the, the easiest way to describe it. What Jesus is saying is this, your body, let's say that I'm, I'm up here right now, there's bright lights on me, right? He's like, your body can be in a place that is full of light, but if your eyes are blinded, then you might as well be in darkness. Does that make sense? So there can be light everywhere. But if I can't see, or like it says in the, in the book of Acts, it says that Paul had scales on his eyes. It was broad daylight, and Paul had to be taken from place to place because even though it was bright out, he couldn't see. It doesn't matter how bright it is. Your eyes are what determine what you can see or not, right? And, and for a blind person, they almost get used to it from birth, and so they adjust, right? But he's not talking about someone who's blind. He's talking about someone who has put scales on their eyes, someone who's allowed darkness to come in, and now they're bumping into things, and their life makes no sense because darkness has gotten in. So they're walking in the light, but they're blinded by the darkness, okay? Okay? So he says, once your heart believes, once your heart adores, once your heart starts to worship something smaller than Jesus, the next thing that starts to change is your thoughts, your mind, your eye, your, your mind starts to change. You actually start believing different things. Your theology starts to change. You start thinking, okay, I have trusted this with my heart. Now I'm believing that it can satisfy me in my mind. And then once you do that, then the last thing happens where he brings up the body and another, way for, another word for body is the will. And so your will starts to behave. You're, 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 you, you actually, that's why later on in the passage, Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. That thing literally becomes your master. You become a slave to that thing. So whatever it says, you have to do now because you've already believed it in your heart. You've already contemplated it in your thoughts. And now you obey it with your body. Your will has to behave. It has to. Okay? Now here's what's funny. I'm working on this, 
And I'm wrestling. I'm telling you, I wrestled with this part of this passage. I, just, I, I had to figure it out. Then I finally come up with this model, and I'm like, man, I'm so deep. I mean, I got this, whew, I'm like patting myself on the back. I'm like, man, that was, that was great. Nobody has ever thought about this. And then a few hours later, I come across this quote from Tim Keller. Here's what he says. He says, what the heart most wants, the mind finds reasonable, the emotions find valuable, and the will finds doable. What the heart most wants. Yeah, great minds think alike. Amen. What the heart most wants, the mind finds reasonable, the emotions find valuable, and the will finds doable. So, so if you worship it, then no matter how illogical it is, it makes sense to you. And you can't explain the person, right? Have you ever have been with someone who's struggling with addiction? You can't explain them out of it because it makes sense in their mind. And then their emotions start to get attached to this thing. They, they value this thing, whether it's valuable or not. And then all of a sudden, the will is the last thing that happens. Here, here, guys, here's why I do not give application in my sermons. This is why I do not give application. You know why I don't give application? Because if all I do is give you application at the end of a sermon and don't give you the gospel at the end of the sermon, then all I'm doing is I'm preaching to the will. Okay? If at the end of my sermon I say, hey, these are three things you should do to be a better dad or a better, a better wife or a better employee, the problem is if all I do is give you three steps, it's behavior modification, not heart transformation. Okay? That's why you're not going to hear application here. I don't have anything against application. It's just I'm actually, I actually want you to change. And if all I give you is information for the will to do, steps for the will to do, but don't ever talk about your emotions, your mind, and your heart, you're not going to change because the heart is what starts the behavior. And the reason why I preach the gospel and give the gospel is because the gospel changes the heart. Once your heart changes, then everything else is going to change. That's why J.D. Greer talks about how, and you guys, some of you have heard me talk about this, that, that when we try to just preach to the will, it's like you have a metal bar, and what you do with that metal bar is you try to, you're doing everything in your power to bend that bar. You're bending, you're bending, you're bending. The problem is, is when you stop applying outside pressure, that bar just goes back to how it was. But what the gospel does that's totally different from exterior force is the gospel doesn't bend the bar, the gospel melts the bar. Once the bar is melted, God can do whatever he wants now. Okay? So that's why we preach the gospel here. Because the gospel is what's going to change it. Okay? So, what we see, let's go back to the, I have two questions. Sorry, I didn't bring that up. Can you go back to the two questions I had under this point? So the first thing we see is how do we search for treasures? Jesus says that it starts with the heart, then it goes to the mind, and then it manifests itself in, in the will. So then the next question I want to ask and answer under this point is why are certain treasures more attractive to us than others? See, because not everybody is attracted to the same treasures. And the question is, why are certain treasures more attractive to us than other treasures? Okay? Let me explain to you it this way. If you can put my next slide up with my wonderful uh, illustrations on it. Okay? So I did this last night, so don't blame me. No, don't judge me, okay? Like, this is as good as it gets. Um, some of you have heard me discuss this, and if you've ever done premarital with me, you've definitely heard me discuss this. Because I, I think this is the most important thing that a couple should know before getting into marriage. We've been talking about idols, right? We've been talking about treasures, things that we are tempted to treasure other than Jesus. An idol is anything that we worship, love, or rely on more than Jesus. Now, according to many authors, this is not just one person who writes, there's so many books on this subject now. 
there are two types of idols. The surface idols, the reason why they're called surface idols is because those are the things that if people spend enough time with you, they'll know that you worship them. That's why they're called surface. And the surface items are the, the, the categories I gave you earlier, remember? Items, duties, others, longings, sufferings. Those are the surface idols. A surface idol is, your, you, I guarantee you, your kids know what your surface idols are. Okay? You're not hiding it. That's why they're called surface idols. Your spouse know what, what knows what you actually worship. Your coworkers actually can know what you actually worship. Your family members, your parents, your siblings. The only person that doesn't know what you worship is you. Okay? The only person that's blinded to it is you. Everyone else knows exactly what you worship. All you got to do is spend more than 24 hours with you, and they'll figure it out. We are all tempted to worship surface idols. Now, here's what happens. Most secular counseling only talks about the top part. It only deals with the top part. So let's say you're, you're, you're dealing with smoking, and you want to stop smoking. You go to a secular counselor, and here's what a secular counselor will say. They'll say, okay, you want to stop smoking? That's an, that, they, don't use, they won't use the word idle, but they'll say, you want to get rid of that addiction? You should start working out instead. But you see what they did there? They didn't deal with the root of the issue. They just gave you another God to worship. See, that God is really destructive, so you should do a, more, a, a, a God that won't hurt you as much. Don't smoke, run. The problem is you're still worshiping something smaller than Jesus. The, the problem is that you're still treasuring something that's not God. Your, your treasures are still on earth, not in heaven. That's the problem with that most secular counseling, okay? But what many of the books that I've read, this is my favorite subject to talk about outside of the gospel because it's so foundational. What, what, what many authors do, and I've, I've kind of worked on this over the years, is they say that in order to really deal with our surface idols, we have to understand our root idols. There's a reason why we attach ourselves and are attracted to certain types of idols. We are attracted to certain types of treasures, okay? And the three reasons are security, significance, and satisfaction. Here, here's what they argue. Every human being struggles with all three of these S's, but primarily there's always one that you struggle with more than all the rest. There's always one that he's more than the rest. So let me explain each one. The first one is security. A person who wants security, here's what their deepest desire is. What they want more than anything else is they want power. They want control. They want, they want to know what the plan is. The, their biggest fear is not having a plan and things being out of their hands. That's what a security person does. A significance person, what they're most motivated by is they want to be approved of. They want to be applauded. They want to be seen. They want to be noticed. They love to be loved, and they, they need to be needed. That's what someone who struggles with significance does. And then the last one is satisfaction. The person who, who struggles with this root idol of satisfaction, what, what they want more than anything else is they want comfort. They want peace. They want rest. They want pleasure. They want enjoyment. That's, that's their vision of what life should be, okay? So even though we all struggle with all of them to an extent, there's almost always one that you struggle with more than any of the other ones. And almost always, the reason why you attach yourself to surface idols is because you want one of those S's, okay? So let me give you some examples from my life. My wife has always been a security person. And so what she wants more than anything else is she wants control. She wants power. She wants to have everything uh, uh, under, uh, within her hands. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to give up control. I don't want to surrender. That's what she's always struggled with. Me, what I've always struggled with is significance. The thing that my soul most needs in any circumstance is applause, is approval is acceptance. This has always been my struggle since I was two. It's always been my struggle. So let me show you how this shows up in my art on marriage. Whenever Lily and I get money, especially when not so much now, but when we first got married, 
Jesus brings up money as one of the examples here in this passage. But whenever Lily and I would get a paycheck, okay, or any type of money, what Lily would do is she would try to save the money. She was a saver. Because as long as we had money in the bank, we were secure. As long as we had money in the bank, everything was going to be okay. Me, on the other hand, because my thing was significance, so money was one of my surface idols, but I wasn't worshiping money because I needed security. I was worshiping money because I needed significance. So whenever I got money, I would want to go buy clothes, and I would want to go buy stuff. Because as long as I had stuff, then I would look better than what I previously did. See? So on the surface, it looked like a saver and a spender. But underneath it, it was two idolaters worshiping money for two different reasons. And I would judge her, and she would judge me. I was using money to look good. She was using money to feel safe. Okay? We actually were laughing the other day because we were talking about how um, uh, we even see it in how we host people at our house. When people come to our house, um, I get mad at Lily because she starts, she's either focusing all on preparing or once the food is over, everything's over, cleaning up because she has to control something. She's an introvert, and so she has to start doing stuff in the kitchen because she wants to control something. Her security comes out. So I'm mad at her because she's not interacting with people. And she's mad at me because I'm not helping her. My significance is coming out. So I'm like, are you guys having fun? Please tell me you're having fun. Oh, please tell me you're having fun. Tell me this is the best visit ever, right? <laughs> and so I'm mad at her because she's not helping my significance idol. And she's mad at me because I'm not helping her security idol. Right? And the last example I'll give you is at a restaurant. If you're at a restaurant, right, Lily and I will go to a restaurant with our, with our daughters. Our daughters will start to misbehave. They will start to act up, okay? When our daughters misbehave or act up, we, we both get angry, but for totally different reasons, okay? The reason why Lily is angry about our daughters acting up is because they are no longer following her plan for the night. She had a plan for the night, right? And it's not going correctly. Me, I don't care about my plan. I am embarrassed that these girls are acting ratchet at the, at the restaurant, okay? Like, I'm like, you're making me look bad. I'm never going to see any of these people ever again, but I look bad right now, okay? And so as a result, we deal with it totally different. Like Lily, because it's a security thing, she wants power in a certain plan, she's only going to give them one option on how they can stop making noise. Only one. And that's the only option they can take, right? Because she wants security again. Power again, control again. Me, I'll give them any option they want. I'll be like, hey, hey, hey uh, 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 do you want to watch my phone? Uh, do, you, do, you, do you want some drugs? Like, do, what, what do you need? <laughs> Just please stop talking and making noise because you're embarrassing me, okay? So even how we deal with it shows our idols. And so the question you have to ask yourself is, the reason, so once you identify what your treasures are, the, the you know, items, duties, others, longings, sufferings, you have to figure out what is my root idol? Why am I so attracted and why do I feel so drawn to this certain type of treasure? And like I said, all of us struggle with all of them to an extent, but there's always one that motivates you more than any other. And to the, the, the faster you can identify and diagnose which one that is, not only will it be better for you in your own walk, but I promise you it'll be better for the people around you too. Okay? So let's go back to the three points. The first thing we see in this passage is we see the types of treasures. The second thing that we see in this passage is we see the search for treasures. And then the last thing that we see in this passage is we see the treasure of treasures. Okay? Here, here's what's so fascinating about this passage. Remember what I said at the beginning. I said, hey, I'm going to bring up heavenly treasures at the end again. Okay? 
Now, a lot of commentators, a lot of biblical scholars, they, they disagree on what heavenly treasures are. And part of the reason is because Jesus never actually tells us what heavenly treasures are. He kind of just leaves it there for open interpretation. I heard a lot of different explanations, but here's what I think in light of my reading a heavenly treasure is. To have heavenly treasures, what it means is it means to value and prioritize the things here on earth that are going to matter in heaven. So let me say that again. Heavenly treasures is when you value and prioritize the things that are going to be important in heaven. So that means fellowship. That means obeying. That means being generous. That means uh, 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 worshiping. That means praying. Okay? That's what storing up treasures in heaven means. It means doing the things that are going to last forever. Doing the things that we're going to do in heaven. Okay? That's what it means to store earthly, I mean, heavenly treasures. But here's what's interesting about the list I just gave you. Think about it. So there's generosity, right? Being generous with our time, whatever, being generous. It's praying. It's worshiping. It's, it's uh, 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 um, uh, obeying God's law. It's fellowshipping with, with other believers, right? But here's the problem with the list I just gave you. The problem with the list I just gave you is that if that's the only thing that describes, if those are the only things that are in the category of heavenly treasures, then actually Christianity is no different from any other religion. Because every other religion worships, every other religion prays, every other religion obeys, every other religion fellowships. And so if the earthly treasures, I mean, if heavenly treasures, if the only thing that encompasses uh, heavenly treasures are things that we do, then we're no different from any other religion. You know the other problem with that list? Is remember what I talked about, that it goes from the heart to the mind to the will. The problem with that list I just gave you is that they only go after the will. And so most sermons, what most pastors would do right now is they would say, hey, so you gotta pray more, you gotta read more, you gotta uh, worship more, you gotta do this more and, and, and obey more and give more. But the problem is if, if that's all you do, you're preaching to the will and no one actually changes. So in other words, what that means is even though those heavenly treasures aren't bad, what they actually do is they point us to a greater heavenly treasure. And it's only when we see these treasures in light of that treasure that these treasures make sense. Okay? And you know what's, what's, what's amazing as you look at this passage, and Jesus infers, infers it all throughout the text. What's amazing about this passage is that the ultimate treasure, the treasure of all treasures, is not an abstract principle. It's not a list of precepts. It's not a hefty paycheck. It's a person. It's a person. And you know who that person is? The Bible says that that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the treasure of all treasures. So you might be asking, wait, 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 wait. How and why is Jesus the treasure of all treasures? Why is Jesus the, the, the treasure in heaven that changes all other treasures, that, that supersedes all other treasures? Well, the reason why, there's actually two reasons why. The first reason why Jesus is actually the treasure of all treasures is because Jesus satisfies us like no treasure can satisfy us. And the reason why I know is because in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus, he says something. It's a verse that we've all have heard before. Even if you're not really a churchgoer, you've heard this verse before. Jesus says something in that verse, and when he says it, what he's actually telling us is that he is the ultimate satisfaction. He is the only treasure that can satisfy us. Jesus, in John 14, verse 6, says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Okay? Why is that important? Because by Jesus saying he's the way, the truth, and the life, he is telling you that he is the three things that those S's most need. 
The three S's. When he, Jesus says he's the way, he's talking to the person who struggles with security. And what Jesus is saying to you is not only am I the way salvifically, but I am the way in your marriage. I am the way in your parenting. I am the way at your workplace. I am the way. Not you. I am the way. Then he says, I am the truth. That's for people who struggle with significance. Me, I struggle with significance. What I always forget, if you follow me throughout the week, my week is up and down, up and down. And it's always up and down depending on how people view me. So if someone compliments me, I'm up. And if someone doesn't uh, say something about my sermon, I'm down. And if someone looks at me weird at the meeting, I'm down even further. And I, and I, go, and I go up and down, up and down, up and down. But listen, if Jesus is my truth, then what he says about me is what matters. I am fully loved. I am fully accepted. I have been fully adopted. And so if that's true, who cares what you think about me? Who cares? That's what we see. And then the last thing he says is, I am the life. He's talking to the person who most wants satisfaction. Jesus says, look, look, you want pleasure? You want peace? You want rest? That's in me now. That's not in, in, in a person or a place or in pornography or in drugs or in, in gambling. That's found in me. I am the source of your pleasure. I am the thing that's going to most satisfy your soul. I, he says in another place in John where he says that I came to give life and to give it abundantly. Jesus is where true life is found. So Jesus satisfies us like no one else can satisfy us. He gives us what no one else can give us. But here's what makes Jesus a treasure. It's not just because he can satisfy us, but unlike any other treasure, he also sacrifices for us. Here's the thing about treasure. Any other treasure that you build your life on, it requires everything and gives nothing in return. That's how treasures work, okay? So whether that's your kids or your spouse or, or money or, or retirement or whatever it is that you're worshiping, every other earthly treasure, even if it has some return at the beginning, over time is the law of diminishing returns. The, the moth will destroy, right? And they will be rusting and they will die. Even if it's a person, they'll die eventually, okay? So, so here's what happens. Jesus says, no, no, I am, I am the only treasure that gives everything and requires nothing. Every other treasure requires everything and gives nothing. Jesus is the one who sacrifices it all. Here's what's crazy about Jesus. Jesus is in heaven. Everything's perfect in heaven. He had no reason to come down. Jesus had everything that he needed. He had perfect security, perfect significance, perfect satisfaction. Everything was great. And yet Jesus leaves heaven when he had everything, but he, we thought he had everything. Because there's actually something he didn't have. There was, there was actually something he was willing to travel the whole cosmos to get. And the thing that he didn't have was you. You are the only treasure that Jesus didn't have in heaven. And so Jesus left heaven, came down to earth to find you. He's the only treasure that treasures you back. Come on. That's what we see. So, so Jesus, think about what he does at the cross. Jesus, he loses, even though he's the source of our security, satisfaction, and significance. At the cross, Jesus loses his security, satisfaction, and significance. He loses his security because he's not in heaven anymore. He, uses his, he loses his uh, 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 satisfaction because there's no peace. There's no rest. If anything, there's enmity now between him and his father. And he loses his significance because the child is treated like an orphan. Jesus loses the three things that he comes to give you. Why? So that we can find them in him. At the cross, the, the incorruptible one became corruptible. At the cross, the, the powerful one became vulnerable. At the cross, the immortal one became killable. At the cross, the treasure of heaven was treated like the garbage of earth. Come on. 
That's what we see. That's why last week I said to you, Jesus is not the gift giver. Jesus is the gift. He's more than a gift giver. He's more than your treasure dispenser. He is the actual treasure. And to the degree that you understand that, to that degree you will change. To that degree you will take your your gaze from earthly things to, to heavenly things. Listen, to the degree that you see Jesus treating you as precious, to that same degree you will treat him as precious. To the degree that you see Jesus valuing you to the point of death, to that same degree you will value him to the point of death. And to the degree that you see Jesus treasuring you, to that same degree you will treasure him. Amen. Amen.